this last June, when my family and I were in the U.S., I had the opportunity to meet the new pastor of the church that Julie and I were a part of when we lived in Texas. And uh, Justin DuBose is his name, and we got together for coffee, and we immediately had a number of connections in common. One of those was basketball. We started talking about basketball actually about five minutes into our, our meeting, and I found out that he loved basketball as well. And in the course of our conversation, he told me a story. He said, it's my greatest moment of fame and also my greatest humiliation. And just so you know, I texted him a couple days ago and I said, hey, can I use that story um, as part of uh, my opening for the sermon on Sunday? And he said, absolutely, if God can be glorified by my humiliation, so be it. So uh, it was a basketball story. And he said one time when he was in high school, he got to play, his school played against another school and this other school had a player named Dwight Howard. Now, many of you have no clue who Dwight Howard is. I'll forgive you for that. But he is a, a player who today plays in the, in the professional American Basketball League, the, the NBA. And uh, to give you a little frame of reference, Dwight Howard is 2 meters and 11 centimeters tall. If you saw a picture of him, the first thing you would be impressed with actually is not his height, but it's his width. Not the width like me, but width that is comprised of very cut muscles. Justin, on the other hand, is about my size. He's uh, thinner than I am, but he's about my height, so around 185. And Justin said at the time he was the tallest player on his team, so he had to guard Dwight Howard during that whole game. He said the, whole, the entire game was humiliating. He said it was just Dwight Howard every time getting the ball and scoring a basket. But Justin said, he, he said, I made a vow to myself that Dwight Howard would not dunk on me during this game. So for those of you who may be unfamiliar with basketball uh, terminology, dunking is, in Portuguese we would say, enterrar. Uh, it's when the player, something I've never been able to do, the player gets the ball and jumps up and actually puts it places it inside. He doesn't have to shoot it. He puts it in there. Um, and he said, I will not let Dwight Howard dunk on me. He may do anything else, but he's not going to dunk on me. And he said at one point late in the game, he had been successful so far in keeping Dwight Howard from dunking. And Dwight Howard got the ball turned and Justin said he was behind Dwight Howard and he was right under the basket and he was going up to dunk. And he's like, I'm not going to let this happen. So this is him telling the story. He said, I literally jumped on his back. <laughs> he said, I put my arms around his neck. I put my legs around his waist. And I said, I may get kicked out of the game. I may, I don't care, but he is not going to dunk on me. But he did anyway. <laughs> And Justin, to hear Justin tell the story, he said, it's like I wasn't even there. He's like, you know, here he has an extra 175 pounds on his back, and it makes no difference. He jumps with me on his back, carries me up, and dunks the ball. He said, that's my great moment of greatest fame, playing against Dwight Howard, and my moment of greatest humiliation. Here's the moral of the story. Dwight Howard, at least in that context was unstoppable. 
In the next section of the book of Acts, Luke is going to show us that the gospel is unstoppable. God's plan for the spread of his word, his truth, and his salvation, it can't be diverted by human attempts. But just because it's unstoppable does not mean that it does not encounter resistance. Dwight Howard may have been unstoppable, but that did not mean that Justin wasn't hanging on his back. What we are going to see in the rest of chapter 5 of Acts is the inexorable advance of the gospel, even in the face of strong opposition. We're going to look at the methods that the Jewish religious leaders used to try and stop the witness of the church, and then we're going to see how, in each circumstance, the power of God brings about the opposite result that the leaders intended. Two things of which I want to remind you before we read this, this passage. First of all, the very first Sunday when we began the study of Acts, I shared with you that, ironically, the greatest resistance to the gospel is going to come from the Jews. Not from the Gentiles, not from the Romans, primarily, but primarily from the Jews. And we're going to see that again today. Secondly, I just want to remind you how many scholars, I would say there's actually an agreement about this within um, evangelical theology, and that is that the name of the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, is not the best name. Because it's not really, the apostles are doing it, but, but who is empowering it? It's the Holy Spirit. So many argue that this should be entitled the Acts of the Holy Spirit. I just want to remind you of that because what we're going to see enacted in the apostles is brought about by the power of the Spirit that indwells them and indwells this new community, the church. So I'll be reading from Acts chapter 5, um, beginning with verse 17. I want to just remind you of the context at the beginning of chapter 5. We have that great big speed bump of Ananias and Sapphira uh, when God you know, calls the attention of his church, and that leads this community into great fear of the Lord. And then following that, we saw the results of a community that lives in the fear of the Lord. This explosion of healing and of miraculous signs and of conversions. People who recognized that there was something different about this community, they were afraid to join them, but at the same time, the Holy Spirit was bringing about genuine, real conversions and the church was growing. And that brings us to, to where we are today. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled. 
wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail, they're, they're standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priests. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Theudas appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the, of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you'll not be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. So we see here that, that this battle between the gospel and its opponents, it's waged on a human front. On each side of the conflict, men are arrayed who have vastly different views of reality. But if on the side of the church we see the power of the Holy Spirit inspiring the apostles and the believers in their courage, in their boldness, and in their persistence, then we must also recognize that the real force opposing the gospel is not human, but spiritual as well. The Holy Spirit empowers and motivates the church, while the devil empowers and motivates any attitude or action that is against the gospel. I know that you're all very familiar with Ephesians 6.12, but it's worth reading again as a reminder to us. Paul writes to the Ephesian church, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So even though we may look and see, as the apostles did, that the greatest barrier to the gospel is people, we have to recognize that it's the power behind the people that is our real enemy. So while humans may seem to be the resistance, it's the power behind them of which the church needs to be aware. 
uh, I don't know how many of you have ever had the experience of using one of those waxers, the floor waxers in Portuguese, they call them enceradeiras, you know, and they, they have a, a handle that you hold and they start to spin really fast. The first time I used one of those, I had not been, it had not been explained to me how to use it. So already those of you who, who have used one are laughing because you know what happened, right? So I started it and the thing takes off that way. And it's heavy and it's moving fast and it, it just drags me behind it and I'm running after it and I'm trying to control it. I'm trying to control it all the time. All I needed to do was release the handle because that would cut what? The power behind it. It would cut the, the electricity and it would stop. But because I was so caught up in the moment, I was just trying to control this thing. You know, it's carrying me around halfway across the room before it finally, I just let go, you know, let go of the switch. Only to say that we have to remember that no matter how, how much a person or a group of people may seem to be the barrier... We have to remember that it's actually the power behind them that is our true enemy. There are a variety of emotions and thoughts that can fuel animosity toward the gospel, right? But here in Acts 5, it's simple jealousy. It was not theological concerns, primarily. It wasn't a care for the people. It was not zeal for the Jewish faith and practice. It was plain old jealousy. The religious leaders were jealous because the apostles had power and popularity that they didn't have. The Sanhedrin had political power, but the apostles had spiritual power. And they were exercising the power of God in performing miracles, healings, and exorcisms, and the Jewish leaders couldn't compete. Though they were in high positions of honor, influence, and authority, they did not have the power of the Holy Spirit moving through them. Consequently, they didn't have the same level of popularity among the people, and it was gnawing at their hearts and minds. This jealousy festered in them till it spilled out in animosity toward the leaders of this community. And we see five specific ways, five methods that the religious leaders attempted to use to stop the gospel, and all of this born of jealousy. So the first attempt is arrest and imprisonment. This is the second time Peter and John have been put in prison that we know of, but it's the first time that all 12 apostles are jailed. Now, we know that this is just the beginning of the historical use of this tactic to intimidate and pressure believers to stop spreading the truth about Jesus. We may not have faced that ourselves in our context, but we know that often, ever since Acts, different regions of the world at different times Many believers have been arrested and jailed to try to stop the spread of the gospel. So, how does God respond? The religious leaders close and lock the doors. What does God do? He opens them. He opens them. And He does something else as well, though. The angel of the Lord sets the apostles free, and He tells them to go to the temple courts and tell the people all of the good news. That's important. It's revealing to us something of the heart of God. He doesn't set them free just so they will be free. He sets them free for a purpose. 
that they would continue to be his witnesses. So often, I put myself, or I try to imagine myself in the place of biblical characters. I put myself in the place of the apostles, and I imagine the doors of the jail open. And, you know, I'm looking around, and my, my, my first my first reaction is what? Hide or leave town, lie low, run away, don't draw attention to myself. The angel of the Lord tells the disciples to do the opposite. Go to the very center of social and religious life in Jerusalem, the temple, and teach, proclaim the truth. And the disciples obey. I have a lot of respect for them. God's heart is for the spread of what Jesus has done. He wants more people to hear and more people to become his children. And he has chosen to spread that message through us, his church, his family. The religious leaders think prison will silence them or at least contain them. At least we'll know where they are. The next morning, can you imagine the shame and anger and confusion. I love the way that verse 25 says that this messenger comes running back and he's like, the men that you put in jail, um, they're standing in the temple teaching the people. The second attempt on the part of the religious leaders that's, that's related to us here is um, legal action or judicial decrees, if you want to put it that way. When the religious leaders finally get the apostles back into their courtroom, they remind them of their past edict. The first time that they imprisoned Peter and John, remember, and they were given strict orders to not speak any longer in Jesus' name. And this is an example of of legislation, of legal pressure being brought to bear on believers to stop them from witnessing. The Sanhedrin was the ruling religious body in Israel, and uh, you need to understand that the concept of the separation of church and state is a much more modern concept. It was not a concept that was accepted or even known in ancient Jerusalem. So even though they are the religious leaders, they yet carry very strong political and social influence as well. And we see that they use this tactic to silence or to attempt to silence them. It's a legal threat. It's the power that, is, that forms the, the judiciary saying to them, you may no longer do this. Again, this is a tactic that's been used throughout history. Humans who are against God trying to make redemption illegal and, and putting limits on the sharing of the hope of Christ, making it a crime. So again, how does God respond? What does the Holy Spirit do or what had the Holy Spirit done in reaction to this attempt to silence the gospel through legal threat? The Sanhedrin says it themselves. We gave you strict orders not to speak in this man's name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. The exact opposite. With legal threats, they try to silence the apostles, and the result is that all Jerusalem is filled with their message. You see how God takes these these attempts, these human attempts to stop His Word, and He turns it to the opposite result. Now, we come to the third method 
that, that these religious leaders used to try to stop Jesus, really, to try to stop the gospel, and that is death. I don't want to take the time to go into too many details about this here, but Luke has arranged this account in a chiastic structure. We've looked at that concept of a chiastic structure quite a bit over the last months. But basically, it pairs um, events or it pairs phrases or pairs principles um, at the beginning of a text, at the end of a text, and then they're paired until they get down to the very middle, which is the, the place to which the author wants to draw our attention. In this case, there are five methods that the, the religious leaders use, and death is the one right in the middle of those five. So that's the major attempt. And really, as we think about it, that, that's kind of final, or it should be. It should be, right? I mean, the ultimate way to silence someone would be to kill them. And in this context, there, Luke is, is, is relating to what the religious leaders did to Jesus. So, the Sanhedrin essentially accuses the apostles. We told you not to do this, and you filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Peter, he's kind of like the press secretary for the apostles so far. He's their spokesperson. And he stands up to speak. And here's something very interesting. If you look at that passage, do you ever see the apostles defending themselves legally? Do you ever hear them saying, well, no, it wasn't really like that. You know, well, we might have talked about the name a little bit, but, you know, really, and, and by the way, you didn't have the legal right to silence us anyway. No, what, did, what does Peter do? He's like, he witnesses. So they've been accused, and instead of defending themselves, they just keep going. They just keep witnessing. They said, hey, we just have a different audience. In the temple, we have the people. Here, we have the leaders. Let's keep witnessing. And he draws their attention again to what they did to Jesus. You killed him. You killed the Messiah. And it's not mentioned here, but why was it that they killed him? Why do they think it necessary to execute Jesus? I think it's that same ugly beast of jealousy that's rearing its evil head in them when Jesus was on trial. And they had done the worst that they could do to silence another person. They had killed the Son of God. And how did God respond to the death of Jesus? What was the result of this attempt? Peter says to them, God raised Jesus from the dead. <laughs> you killed him. God not only raised him from the dead, but he exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior. So from crucified criminal to prince of heaven and savior of the human race, that's a pretty remarkable turnaround. And note that even in the case of Jesus, God raised him for a purpose. Remember how I said that God had set the apostles free for a purpose? Well, here, the text says that God raised Jesus and he, he exalted him as prince and savior for a purpose. And what is the specific purpose noted here? That he would bring Israel to repentance and forgiveness. Again, that's witness. That's a spreading of the truth. And let me say this again. God's heart is the spread of his good news. And even death can't stop it. It will not stop the advance of the gospel. And 
this has been attempted also. All throughout history, there are many martyrs for the faith that have gone before us. But no execution, no death penalty, no assassination can halt the advance of the joy of the gospel. And so we arrive at the fourth attempt, flogging. Physical torture and humiliation is what the, the authorities try to use to silence the apostles. They had them flogged, probably with a cat of nine tails, uh, which would be nine or more leather thongs that are loose but then joined together in a single grip. The flogging would have torn the skin on their backs and created excruciating pain. And beyond that, it would have created scars on them that they would have carried for the rest of their lives. And I say that this would have been profoundly humiliating as well. Why would that be humiliating? Well, I, I can give you an example that doesn't come close to what the disciples suffered, but um, I'm 48 years old, and when I was really young, things were a lot different. I went to kindergarten in the United States, and the school that I attended um, when I was five in kindergarten still practiced corporal punishment um, of their students. And you know what? There were some times I needed it. I'm not going to argue against that. But the way it was done is that the teacher in, in, our, in our class, kindergarten class, she would tell the student that they were going to receive this spanking or whatever. Um, and then, but she would do it when all the other students were out of the room. So maybe they were going to recess or going to lunch and Nathaniel would have to stay there and wait. And they, they used... I don't need to go into what they use, this instrument of torture, a board of education. Some of you know what it is, but it's big and it's heavy and it hurts. And, but, but what would happen, why was this humiliating? Because you would receive your punishment, which I will say I never was punished unjustly, okay? And then afterwards, you would leave the room. And as you would leave the room, all your classmates were outside watching. They knew what had happened inside. They had probably heard it, and many of them had probably been standing right at the door intentionally to hear your torment. And you'd walk out, and your face would be red from crying, and you'd kind of be walking like this, and everyone would kind of laugh. And it was humiliating. It was humiliating because you knew you had been caught doing something wrong, and then you had been physically punished, and as a boy especially, to have cried, and for people to know that I had cried, it was humiliating. Now, transfer that to adults who are being unjustly, physically tormented and tortured for, for something right that they had done. And then to carry those scars, and for people who would not know them, if you were to see those scars, you would assume that they had done something illegal, right? So this mark of humiliation was on them for life. And then what happens? The Sanhedrin plans that this punishment is going to help contain the gospel. What does God do? Far from being cowed into silence and humiliated into self-pity, the apostles leave the Sanhedrin rejoicing. That makes no human sense. And again, I, I engage my imagination, and I know it probably wasn't like this. I'm sure it wasn't. But I imagine them leaving, 
and, you know, walking down the streets of Jerusalem, like high-fiving each other and saying, yes, yes, we were worthy of suffering for Jesus. Again, that is not a normal human response. Notice how the Holy Spirit has so transformed these men that that which is most humiliating from a human perspective is turned around into being a cause for glory and honor and rejoicing. They left rejoicing and they were pleased that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. So the Holy Spirit is bringing victory once again out of defeat. And the gospel is not going to be stopped by this humiliation and this physical punishment. And then we finally get to the last attempt, the fifth one. And again, it's legal threats. Legal threats, judicial orders, right? Because they worked so well the first time. So let's do it again. And as we've come to expect, God turns this command on its head. The exact opposite happens. Day after day, in the temple courts, and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. What did the Sanhedrin say to them? They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And what happens every day in the temple courts, that means publicly, and then from house to house privately, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Five different methods, five different attempts to stop the advance of the good news, and each one had the opposite effect. And at the end of the account, Gamaliel was right. Do you remember who Gamaliel is? He's the man who stands up, the only one who shows a little bit of wisdom. <laughs> he stands up in the Sanhedrin, he says, wait just a second. If their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Man cannot stop God, and nothing can stop his gospel. So where does that leave us? Evangelism, witness, and the unstoppable gospel of Christ just pulse through this whole passage. Really, it pulses through the whole book of Acts. And what we see is consistently God using His people to spread His story. And for those of you here this morning or those of you watching online who have already confessed and repented of your sin, who have believed that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died specifically for our sins, but that he rose again from the dead to defeat sin, death, and the devil, and you've accepted his death in place of your own, then you have been adopted by God as his daughter or his son. And it's through you, through us, that he wants to continue to spread this good news. And as with the apostles, we face obstacles. We face people, attitudes, and situations that attempt to stamp out the proclamation of the gospel. But most of us face very different obstacles than the apostles faced. As far as I know, none of you in here has been legally ordered to stop speaking about Jesus. As far as I know, none of you have been imprisoned specifically because of the gospel. I know none of you have been executed because of the gospel. 
and none of you have suffered physical torture because of the gospel, as far as I know, at least not here in Brazil. So what, what are the obstacles that we face? I think the obstacles that we face are more subtle and they're more internal. Rather than imprisonment and flogging, we face apathy and unconcern within ourselves. We just, we just don't really care that much. We're kind of apathetic about the spread of the gospel. Oh, sure, it's great that it would happen. But our own deliberate involvement in it is often lacking. Rather than death, we're confronted by distraction. We get distracted from our central calling of witness and discipleship. Let me tell you something. You know, I've been distracted by for the last weeks, politics. And I actually was just wondering this morning, I was just thinking, you know, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. I'm just asking, over the last months, maybe years, maybe just days, but just consider if you've done more witnessing about your political view or have you done more witnessing about what Jesus Christ has done in your life and the salvation that he has brought and the transformation that he offers and the forgiveness for sins. In short, the good news, the gospel. Instead of legal injunctions, we face our own fear of being mocked, right? Or our fear of being thought, foolish or stupid, or that fear, oh my goodness, that terrible fear of being thought of as a crentão, a big Christian. And we face those fears. And brothers and sisters, I want you to understand, I am not advocating that we become obnoxious in our sharing of the gospel or of our witness. But what I am advocating for is that we honestly assess ourselves and consider all the opportunities that we've been given and all the times we have chosen to remain silent for convenience sake, for comfort's sake, and to be aware of the obstacles that we face toward fulfilling our calling, the primal calling of the church to make disciples and to be witnesses of what Christ has done. The Holy Spirit lives in us, and He will empower us if we accept and follow His calling. The great enemy of God and of the church, the devil, understands that we are the weak link in the process of gospel witness. And, and that's why He attacks us. We've seen how He attacked the apostles, and if we're honest, we can see how He subtly attacks us. So maybe the first step is that we repent, that we're honest with ourselves. When we repent, we say, Lord, my heart has not burned for your gospel and its spread like yours has. And we admit that. But then we ask the Lord for his transformation. Lord, make me aware. A few weeks ago, I talked about those witnessing opportunities, right? See and seize that God would enable us to see the opportunity and to seize the opportunity to take it. That should be part of our prayer. And for some of you, I actually have had someone say this to me recently. 
you know, in my day-to-day life, I so rarely come into contact with unchurched people. I rarely come into contact with unbelievers. Uh, So, you know, how do I put this into practice? My suggestion would be to ask God for opportunities. If we're genuinely open for those, I believe He's going to give those. But the truth is that we kind of hope that those opportunities don't come. Uh, We hope that they don't, you know. Uh, But let's let's pray. Let's repent and then let's pray and ask the Lord for opportunities and then ask Him for the boldness of the Holy Spirit to pursue those. Because if His heart is beating for the spread of His gospel and the salvation of human souls, then I assume that we want our hearts to be in that way as well. And if for those who oppose the gospel, Gamaliel's words need to be taken to heart, then for those of us who are part of the gospel family, Peter's words need to be taken to heart. We must obey God rather than men. The gospel will not be stopped. So the question is, will we be a part of its spread or not? We're invited to join. The Holy Spirit lives in us. The power has been given. Will we follow the calling that God has given us as his church? Let's pray. Lord, your word is very often convicting. But also, Father, it it brings joy as we consider that you have not called us to do something that you will not empower us to do. And as with the apostles, you didn't call them to be your messengers without giving them the Holy Spirit to enable them to do that. And we know that you have given us your spirit as well. And we pray, Lord, as a congregation, as this part of your body, that we would not resist your spirit, but that we would accept the calling that you have given, that we would be sensitive to it. Forgive us, Lord, forgive me for the many times that we have had opportunities and we have either not seen them or have chosen not to take them. And we pray that you would give us eyes and hearts that will see the opportunity and seize the opportunities as they come. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.